You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 14. It is 1883 and we are living in Memphis, one of the few larger cities in America to have been taken back from the Nahual by the people of Tennessee and without military aid. I am apprenticed to a tailor. Food and supplies for bartering are scarce, but not everyone has grown skilled at mending their own clothes, so we offer people a valuable service. Sometimes we are given things in trade that have little use. Those are often a portion of my daily wages. My master, Prendergast, sends me home tonight with some bread, dry fish, a few candles, a ceramic dish, and a chess set with seven pieces missing. When I reach the small house my father and I are living in, Here's Sarah at the dinner table with his colleague, Signor Castillo. I immediately place the food upon this table. My father begins to eat and eyes the chest set disapprovingly. What is that? I thought we could play together. Ah, we do not play games anymore, Chu and I. If you want to play a real game, go on a treasure hunt and find me something of value. Signor Castillo snorts with laughter and bites into the fish as they continue talking. I am invisible now and will interrupt them no further. As I turn to go, my ears prick up as I hear them discussing the Natchez. I retreat to my room and listen at the door. Not far down south of the city of Memphis, a riverboat stands, rotting and abandoned by the shore. It ran aground years ago, and now it is slowly sinking into the Mississippi. I had heard that a gang of thieves were using it as a hideout. They were seen coming and going from there for many months last year, and nobody dared investigate closer. However, as I listen, Signor Castillo confides that a gunfight broke out one night and nobody has set foot on or off in the many months since then. Thieves, I think to myself. Memphis has very little need of gold. It cannot be used for anything beyond ornamentation. It cannot be eaten or traded and neither can paper notes. But if these thieves were local, then what they stole will definitely be of tradable value. Sleeping out the back door, I find my friend Ben Wheeler and his sister Mary. They are spotted with whitewash from painting fences. They do not take much convincing, and later that evening we stand upon the muddy bank, staring up at the hulk of the Natchez. Mm. 
Dusk is falling. There are no lights on in the windows. If anybody is alive in there to give chase, we will have the approaching darkness to lose ourselves in. This thought gives us some comfort for the first few minutes of our exploration. We tread the creaking boards lightly, peeking through the carcass of the riverboat, breathing in the musty air, heavy with decay, as insects buzz around us. Dark brown water is pooling on one side of the boat, so we stay on the other. Ben is nervous, but jokes about finding the wheelhouse and steering this thing out to sea. Mary is hanging back. I'm scared. Shh. Ben, I want to go home. I want to go home too, Miguel. That's okay. You two chickens can go. I'll even take you back to the bank, but I want to keep looking. What do you think you're going to find? You said there would be treasure. I don't know. There has to be something here. What's that noise? Sounds like thunder. As we climb to the upper deck, I realize the ship has been gently shaking since before we stepped aboard. Something is making the timbers vibrate. The noise gets louder as we move further. I glance over the side and wonder how much it would hurt if we have to jump. At this point, we will most likely break our legs. So if it comes to that, we will have to leave by the water side. I am not the best swimmer. We look into rooms and can tell which one was being used as a toilet immediately. Ben rushes across to the railings and is sick over the side. Mary scolds him. The rushing sound gets louder as the darkness descends. We can now barely see ahead of us. We find a door with a colored glass window in it. The room behind has light coming through, along with that throbbing rumble. Underneath I can hear strange birdsong. I peer through the window and see no moving human shapes back there. I push the door open gingerly. On the floor are three dead men. The smell hits us immediately. They have begun to rot in the sweltering heat. Mary and I rush across and empty our stomachs over the side of the ship. Ben scolds us. But I saw something else about the dead men. In the center of the room was a glowing light. This must be where they kept their treasure. Clearly they were fighting over it and killed one another. I slowly open the door again and creep forward, picking over the dead men, eyes on the light. And it looks like a window. And now I can smell something else. The air is wet. Wind rolls against me. The roaring is very loud now, and I am burning with curiosity. Mary shouts above the noise for me to come back. I am so close now. Through the window I can make out rushing water as far as the eye can see. A white wall cascading down to a river far below it. This is impossible. I crane my head to look further and beyond the river. I see a red forest, 
sweeping away into the distance. It is at this point that I realize I am losing my balance. It happens slowly at first. I have time to chide myself for not being careful. Mary and Ben have not begun to scream yet. I tell myself that was too close and think on how the next time, if I do not react fast enough, I shall be in trouble. But I am still falling and it is not to the hard wooden floor but through the window. I had in fact pushed my head through to look further and now my body is following behind it pulling me in. Time slows. Now the screams begin but I no longer notice or differentiate between Mary's, Ben's and my own. The room on the ship is snatched up and away from me as I tumble through this new air, deafened by the roar and soaked to the bone. The boiling water at the very bottom rushes up to hit me, and I am swallowed by it. I cannot breathe. I force my eyes open against the pressure and see flashes of sharp rock as I am spun around. I kick as hard as I can in the direction I pray is up and before my lungs give out I come to the surface. The din of the waterfall behind me is ear-splitting and I flounder along with the current. Madre de Dios! I cannot last in here. I am not strong enough. I spot an enormous tree branch by the bank not far from me and kick towards it. My fingers scrabble at the rough sides and it dislodges, pulling downstream along with me. I cling to it, pull myself half out of the water and try to breathe. Where am I? What will become of my father? down the river, passing in and out of consciousness. I wake suddenly submerged and have to claw my way to the surface as my branch turns around and around. Pulling myself up, I gaze at the trees that rush by on either side. I have never seen a red forest before. Never once do I see a person. I begin to wonder if I am alone in this place. There are certainly animals, though. I see multicolored birds and what look like goats and monkeys rush by. Then running a curve, I spot two figures. They are dressed in a strange tribal fashion that makes them appear like jaguars. They turn and regard me, and I realize that those are not masks. And as I draw nearer, just how big they actually are. One of them speaks to the other and points as I pass. I am alive, yes. 
But now seeing how very far I have come from the doorway in the air, I begin to panic and despair of ever getting back to my home. The branch is beginning to break apart. As my desperate clutching pulls off more of the smaller branches, there is less and less to hold on to. I've swallowed a lot of water and I'm beginning to feel very dizzy. I spot another of these great cats on the shore. It is a tiger, enormous, purple, and fierce. It is looking right at me. I push myself back under, holding my breath, praying it does not throw one of those spears in my direction. I splutter back to the surface, unable to control the turning of the branch. I am drowning. I am going to die. I am submerged again and try to kick for the far shore, but I no longer know which way to turn. And a hard blow to my head as it collides with the branch sends my world white. Suddenly, something has grabbed me. I feel an immense weight wrapped around my body. This is it. I am something's next meal. The water draws away at speed, and I splash down onto the bank, <coughs> coughing and spluttering. <coughs> the tiger stands over me, enormous, maybe ten feet high. It shakes the water off itself, and I have only a second to react while his eyes are off me. I scurry towards a hollow tree and squeeze inside, holding my breath in sheer terror. My mind drifts back to the wheat field, hiding with my father. What would he say here? How would he survive? The tiger has noticed me gone, and now prowls the bank. If I am lucky, it will lose interest. I think he sees me, but his back is to the tree. Breathing out slowly as I can, my body is racked with uncontrollable sneezing as I realize how cold I am, soaked to the bone and shivering. I hold my nose so that all that emerges from me are three tiny clicks. All the time my eyes are on the tiger. This is not just some oversized cat. It carries weapons. It is clothed in leather armor and a mask, which means it is intelligent, enough to protect and arm itself in this dangerous jungle. The purple fur, with the moonlight dancing through the red leaves, makes it harder to see until it moves. It has placed something on the ground in front of the tree. I strain to make out what appears to be a piece of dried meat. Some kind of bait. Is this thing luring me or another creature? Hunger gnaws at me as I sit and stare. The tiger has turned its back again and is crouching some way off. What kind of game is this? Could it have poisoned the meat? It must know I am here, in which case it could easily pull me out. I am famished. Slowly, 
I creep out on all fours, trying not to make a sound. I snatch up the food and retreat, devouring it and deciding what to do next. Then the tiger leaps up high into the treetops and brings down fruit, laying one in the same spot. I grab that too. It tastes like Atualfo. The tiger is feeding me. I have no other allies here in this place. Nobody to rely upon. If I turn away this peace offering, I will be dead by the end of tonight. Something else is here. It looks like a crocodile with the face of a rattlesnake. It is making towards my tree. I am immediately gripped with cold fear. This thing can smell me. I can see his long forked tongue tasting the air as it crawls closer. The tiger is still sitting somewhere off. Is this what it intended? Was I simply being fattened up to be fed to its reptile pet? I have nowhere to run. I start to push up inside the tree. Perhaps I can squeeze through one of the cracks behind me. The rattle croc pushes in through the hollow and its enormous maw opens beneath me, flanked with barbed fangs. I cry out in fright. And the reptile is gone. Suddenly snatched away. I peer through the gap in the tree and gaze at the tiger wrestling with this beast. My mind drifts back to the last time I saw Enrique Ugartechia fight. As my father and I traveled through Mexico during the 1870s, Lucha Libre began to emerge. This was our sport, our dance, our theater, our storytelling. It was Mexico's way of comprehending the savagery of the Nahual. Many luchadors would behave like the creatures of our nightmares, and they would battle the heroes of the ring to the cheers of the crowds. The outcome was never certain, so we watched with our hearts pounding. As the years went by, the fighting, the costumes, the personalities became more impressive, more aerial, more graceful, more ferocious. I have not seen these fighting displays in America, and I miss them, more so even than the food. But now, watching this tiger launch itself through the air and tumble around with the reptile, so dazzling and powerful, I think of my heroes. This one would be El Tigre in the ring, and it would defeat all. The crocodile snake is dead. I do not stir. I am stunned by what I have seen, and I do not know how to make the next move. El Tigre turns to go, hauling the reptile's carcass up onto strong shoulders. I find myself rushing out after it, following the cat through the jungle trail. I call out. Come on, you can't just rescue me like that and leave. 
El Tigre turns, visibly angry, and looks down at me. I look up into its big yellow eyes, trying my best not to fall down in fear, and continue. My name is Miguel. Who are you? I do not think for one moment that this feline will speak English or Spanish. But if I am lucky, it may understand my tone. I reach out my hands imploringly. I am stuck here in the jungle. You can either help me or I shall die here. It growls at me. I gasp. It takes a step back. I cannot flinch now. I take a step forward. The ludicrousness of what I am doing overtakes me, and I begin to march around lamenting out loud. I do not know how I am here. I fell through a doorway of some kind. I'm not even sure if I am in the same world anymore. I am lost and need to find my way back. Ay, Dios mío, you are the only creature who has helped me. <coughs> I am overcome by a coughing fit. My skin has begun to ache. My head throbs and my body is trembling. The tiger leans in and growls threateningly. And I compose myself. Despite the fear that courses through me, I fight for control of myself, standing as proudly as I can and raising my chin to El Tigre once again. This is a hunter, a warrior from a tribal culture. It knows I am weak and defenseless, but I must show I value my life and its respect. I place a hand upon my chest and say, slowly and deliberately, Miguel. If it does not understand the other words, surely it will comprehend a name. It snorts and turns to go. I cannot let this single connection I have pass by. I run round in front, lock my gaze intently again and repeat. No, 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 no. Miguel. At this, I hold a hand out towards the cat, willing it to venture a name. If we know one another, it will perhaps start to think of me differently, and it may not abandon me so easily. The tiger growls something I cannot imitate. I find myself shrugging, trying to express my desire to communicate beyond just our words. Do you have a shorter name than that? I ask, and then repeat my own. Miguel. The tiger says something that sounds like Rao, but this time places his gigantic paw upon his own chest. This is it. I repeat back. Rao, Miguel, Rao, gesturing back and forth between us. My hand trembles violently and my vision swims. I steady myself on a tree where the tiger has already seen my dizziness. I pray it is from hunger and exhaustion, but my throat is sore and my stomach boils. With supreme effort, I pull myself back up again and regain my eye contact. The tiger growls, low and quiet, grim and resigned. 
I continue to stare, my last hope hanging on a gossamer thread. My abuelita, my grandmother, comes back to me in my head, telling me fireside stories at age two. After she has told me of the Nahual and the danger and horror he brings to the Aztecs, she tells me, But you know, they were not all bad, Michikio. Some Nahual changed their shape in order to protect their tribes. They have such fierce animal instincts that their human form is simply not enough to contain the brightness burning within. So they go red in tooth and claw and let their primal nature from the most ancient of times guide their actions to keep their families safe. Now, an Aztec warrior, a masked luchador hero, a Nahual of protection, towers above me, deciding if I am worth saving. It reaches out a paw, and my feet leave the ground as I am pulled aloft and slung over each shoulder. I slump down on the damp, fragrant fur and wrap my arm through the fastenings on its armor. I pray I can hold on long enough. have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Miguel, performed by Alex Shaw. Francisco, performed by Matt Wardle. Grandmother and Mary, performed by Loretta Saylor. Ben, performed by Spencer Lieb. Rao, performed by Maureen Foley. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. You also heard Creeping to Ship, Thunder Dreams, Sardana, and Whimsy Groove, performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Dan Mayer, Ian Hopwood, Megan Hopwood, Erish Travers, Nick Grugan, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, Livio de la Cruz, and Scott Corzine. Remember, if you love New Century, to rate and review it on iTunes or pass it on to your buddies. This thing lives and dies by its fans, and it's one thing for me to talk it up on Twitter, quite another to have it recommended. And for those of you who might be worried, no, I'm not going to retell the entire story so far from Miguel's point of view. Next week, we jump forward to the city of Yamaya. And I'll bet there are a few of you who are a little bit sad now, because that would have been kind of awesome. 
What I will say is that Miguel is not the last person we will get to see this story through the eyes of. 